my name is Louise Ellison. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer of Longevity Partners, a real estate-focused sustainability consultancy. Right now, I am very passionate about trying to help the real estate sector to resolve its issues around climate change. Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Morgan Piersdorf, and this is episode two of season 10 of the Work Bold podcast. As you learned in episode one, this season sticks true to challenging the status quo as I help Caleb out with introducing the brilliant conversations he's having this season. In this episode, Caleb has a chat with Bert Eric Tinkate, Europe editor at CoStar Group UK. Off the back of the Urban Land Institute Europe Conference in Madrid, Bert Eric has been covering the real estate market in Europe since the early aughts and had a lot to say about the potential tsunami of contracting office footprints and knock-on effects for the industry. How do we make the best use of the office and what does that really mean post-COVID? Are there key learnings for Europe, for what we're seeing in the US market? Bit early to see how all of the cards fall, but the challenge for investors and policymakers looms large. With 10% or less of office buildings considered prime, what is to be done with stranded assets in light of the continued flight to quality? So many great minds on the pod this season helping us tackle these big questions. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or topics you want covered, reach out to Caleb on Twitter at Caleb underscore Parker, or send him a DM on LinkedIn, where you can also find me as well. So in this episode, we're going to be unveiling the strategies that operators use to leverage NORNORM to boost their revenue and minimize CapEx. How can operators turn sustainable workplace solutions into a more profitable venture? Stay tuned as we journey through insightful conversations with NORNORM co-founder and one of their customers. Jonas, how can operators make money with NORNORM? Well, I think with NORNORM coming in and streaming furniture, we've actually enabled especially operators to help their existing clients move into bigger spaces. Uh, One great example, of course, is Epicenter in Stockholm. We've helped grow nearly 7,000 square meters on companies that have had smaller studios. But as soon as a vacant space comes in through this cooperation partner, AMF, Epicenter being able to actually chop it up, put furniture in there, and then rent it out in smaller perspectives. And I think that has been super good way for them to actually help their clients and keep the relationship with their clients that they're in an operator. And also this is zero risk. They can sell it directly initially to a couple of corporates and then they actually take on the space. We furnish it. And if they would want to ramp it down, we'll collect the furniture. So what were the outcomes of this partnership with Epicenter? Stick around to find out later in the show. Now on with the show. Jeff, let's kick it. Welcome to the Workable Podcast, Louise. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, it's great to be sitting here with you on the red couch. Very on brand for Bold. Indeed. And it's very comfortable. So obviously we're here at the ULI conference here in Madrid. What sort of conversations are you having this week? Oh, a lot of conversations. Um, As you are probably aware, sustainability, climate change, climate risk, ESG is suddenly at the top of everybody's agenda. It has rapidly shot up there over the last couple of years and people are asking questions about all sorts of things, particularly around 
net zero carbon, what their data looks like, how they can get better data, what does their data mean? Stranding risk is a topic of conversation. So yeah, there's a lot of conversations that we're having and it's really interesting. It's very exciting because you know the real estate sector has a has a big role to play in improving in improving its performance in terms of uh, environmental issues and climate change in particular. Well, I think that's probably a good segue to, to now talk about and obviously we had the bio, but talk about longevity, what you guys do and how you're helping real estate companies? So we're a real estate focused sustainability company, so consultancy. So we, we specifically um, specialize in real estate assets and we have a global platform. So we operate in multiple different countries and we service particularly investment management, fund management uh, houses and you know all sorts, anybody who's involved in, in real estate and we provide end-to-end -end services. So anything from setting strategy, initial corporate strategy, fund level strategy, right the way through data, certifications, monitoring, you know, energy um, audits, environmental audits, through to sustainable design. We don't have boots on the ground, we're not an engineering practice, but we can project manage. We have a power business as well, so we provide photovoltaics, renewable energy, those kinds of services as well. So anything you can really think about with regards to a problem in terms of sustainability for real estate, we will probably have a solution. I guess, you, as you mentioned earlier, this is all of a sudden shot up to the top of everybody's agenda now. So what sort of questions are you having asked? Generally, one of the big questions is around net zero carbon and, and how much is this going to cost? There's a real concerns that real estate assets, they're expensive to try to upgrade and to change. And now as we're setting targets around getting those assets to be net zero carbon, particularly the existing assets, which is where the biggest problem lies, then actually making changes to those assets in order to avoid them being stranded. So getting them to a net zero carbon position, getting the fossil fuels out of those assets, those kinds of things, that can be expensive. So, you know, trying to, businesses are trying to get their, get a handle on and get their head around, actually, how much is this going to cost? When am I going to have to do it? Because it needs to be obviously synced with all of their asset management plans and what's going on in terms of those assets. So that's a big area of questions. I want to dive into that one, the cost element, because you're right, that is, that is, a massive issue. So how much does it cost to get a building to net zero? <laughs> that depends on the building, depends on... This is part of the, the, the problem with that question because yes, it's, it's, it, for some buildings it's going, to be, it's going to be so expensive that it becomes difficult for them to ever actually get to a net zero carbon position. There are also a whole load of buildings, heritage buildings and things that we have, which we want to retain. We want to keep those buildings. They're important to us. So how are, you going to, how are we going to deal with those in terms of getting them to a net zero carbon position? And should we be trying to tackle that with those buildings? So cost is a big issue. So maybe the better question for me to ask then is not how much it costs, but how do we arrive at what it costs for a particular building? Yeah. So working out what it's going to cost you for a particular building requires you to have environmental audits done, basically. So we will go into a building and we will look at all of the things that are currently on site at that building. We will look at all of its performance, its operational performance, and, and then we can work out what interventions you need in order to get that building to a net zero composition. And we work with the asset management teams to help them understand you know, how that's going to work for them in terms of the leasing profile of a building. When you're invested in a building, you're invested in assets, you have different investors have different whole periods. So you might only want this asset for the next three years. You might want it for the next 50 years. That all influences when you're going to do this. And that has to be taken into account with any net zero carbon plan. So basically, you have to go on site. You have to understand what's going on with the building. There are things that you can do. And we, we, can, we can look at whole portfolios and say, well, you know, broadly, there are things around kind of lighting and air conditioning systems and, and metering systems that you need to put in, which um, is fairly straightforward to do. Yeah, those kinds of things need to be rolled out. So in our sort of prep call for this podcast, you 
taught me some things from pathways. I had to, I had to look it up and, you know, and educate myself a little bit more. And now you're very excited about it. Very excited. Uh, I can even spell it now uh, with, with, uh, <laughs> with the two with R's. Two R's. It's C-R-R-E-M. It is. This is important when it comes to the, the word stranding you said way mm-hmm. earlier. And I think there's this massive problem right now that ULI is tackling or, or at least trying to tackle around the existing assets that are going to be around in 2050. We don't and further make, than that. Yeah. yeah. If we don't make big changes, then they're going to be stranded. Yeah. But how do we determine whether an asset is going to be stranded? What does stranded mean? And what the hell is CRIM Pathways? <laughs> so the Carbon Risk Real Estate Monitor is the CRIM Pathways. And basically, you put all of the data for your building into the CRIM Pathway, into the model, and it will, it will give you an indication of when that building is going to be suffering from stranding risk in terms of its carbon emissions. So it has a net zero carbon pathway. And at some point, your asset will be above that. It will be beyond that net zero carbon pathway. So it won't be a net zero carbon building. You will need to do, or asset owners need to upgrade their assets in order to keep them within that, that, within that net zero carbon pathway. And at some point, um, if you can no longer actually operate that 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 asset as a as a net zero carbon asset, then it becomes stranded. And it's going if it's going to cost you too much, it's going to cost you more than the asset's worth. Or if we've got carbon pricing and the carbon emissions of that asset are going to be higher than it's than than the income that you can generate from the asset, then it becomes stranded. And there's there's a carrot and a stick to that because you said they're going to become stranded if they can't operate at net zero one because of imminent regulation. Yeah. But number, also number two, customers don't want to go into that. Customers don't building. want to go into those buildings and they become difficult to let, they become difficult to sell in particular. And this is some of the things that we're seeing now is that, you know, we do quite a lot of sustainability due diligence work with clients where they're transacting and they're looking to acquire assets and they want to know what the stranding risk is on the asset. They want to know in what year is this asset going to be in a situation where its operational emissions are going to be above the current pathways and there's not going to be a solution to getting them below the current pathways. So I think this is a good stop for a moment for us to have a sip of coffee or water and turn to our headline sponsor. Quick break back in the studio with the CEO from Epicenter, Patrick Mesterton. Patrick, welcome. And I have a big question for you. That question is, obviously, Nornorm helps you move furniture from CapEx to OpEx. How has that changed for you in the deals that you're doing and the business that you're winning? As Epicenter, we were able to offer our customers an attractive additional service, I would say, because selling furniture as a service without having a lot of financial risk and impact on that has been profound for both us and our customers. We think it's fantastic that we can offer sustainable, flexible spaces that then can help, you know, supercharge, you know, the local entrepreneur systems in the places where we're active and you know the result for us going from uh, a buy model to a to a more uh, sort of uh, uh, flexible model the way that we work with normal has helped us creating an upswing in demand it has heightened our tenant satisfaction and it's also given us you know quite a substantial extra boost on in revenues when it comes to our revenues that we generate from from these private offices and i think customers are very much attracted by their circular approach the fact that it's highly flexible they don't have to spend a lot of time doing purchasing, putting that in sort of their balance sheets. So it's all fantastic operational flexibility and efficiency for our clients. So we're very happy with uh, you know how our partnership has been so far. Well, it sounds like many wins. And I always say the future is flexible. Thank you, Patrick.
Okay, so that obviously leads me to quite a few questions, and let's see if I can get these out. Uh, number one, if there's a clear indication of an asset approaching or already stranded, and someone's trying to sell it, if there's transparency around that, presumably from the Crim Pathways, then the buyer's going to want a discount for all the work they're going to have to do, right? Yeah. So why would uh, an existing asset owner want to... <laughs> Why would they <laughs> why want would they to reveal that? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, ordinarily, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess to some extent, uh, you wouldn't if somebody wasn't going to ask you. So what you're saying is the buyer is probably yeah. going to commission this audit to make sure... Well, in order to... You're going to be... The buyer won't commission the audit, but the buyer will expect whoever they're going to buy it from to be able to tell them what stranded risk is on the asset. So this leads me to my next question, and it is around data. So presumably, there's a lot of data points that, that feed into this mm -hmm. audit. What sort of data are we looking at? How do you access the data? And is that a problem right now? Yeah, I mean, data is a long-standing kind of challenge for the sector. And the, the data that you're pulling in order to go to, into a CREM pathway is the energy performance data. So it's anything that's going to impact the carbon, really, carbon emissions from the asset. And largely, it's it's the energy data, so the gas and electricity and anything else, and the fuels that you're using, and also things like the refrigerants that are being used on the asset. So that data then gets pulled, but it needs to be ideally for the whole building. You have to have it for the whole building. And this is one of the big challenges that our industry has, because landlords have access to the data on the bits that they control. Tenants have access to the data on the bits that they occupy, and sharing that data has, is a is, is a huge challenge. There's no mandate for tenants to provide it to landlords, and tenants have probably got you know if you've got multiple assets, you've got as many landlords as you have assets, and it's 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 a it's a challenge for them to be able to provide all that data to. So things are moving forward, but yeah, that's a that's a, a big issue for them. We we are getting better, but it's um but it's tricky. Sounds like it's uh, job security for you guys. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of the work that we do is understanding, analyzing the data. So what tends to happen with our clients is the property management or or um, facilities management teams will provide the data into into whichever platform or spreadsheet that they want to use to, to manage the data. We'll then look at the data and check the accuracy of it. And accuracy of data is a big issue. There's a lot of, of clients using kind of metering and metering platforms and things, which are very useful but they don't necessarily check the quality and the accuracy of the data. So you still need somebody to actually look at what that data is, whether or not it's correct, and then do the, you know, to be able to then kind of challenge it and push back on it and, and then to do the analysis um, and to see where you need to get to and how you're going to get, how you're going to actually reduce, um, what's a meaningful reduction for, a different asset, for the different assets. So let's talk carbon pricing. Mm. Uh, this is a topic that's been discussed this week. Indeed. Um, what is carbon pricing? And how can that negatively or positively affect the transaction? Well, carbon pricing is kind of what it says on the tin. It's the price of carbon. <laughs> At the moment, there's a kind of element of carbon pricing and there's carbon trading and things in the markets, obviously. For us as an industry, to really understand and to make changes around the carbon emissions of our buildings, really there needs to be some level of pricing put on that carbon. So some businesses are already incorporating a shadow price of carbon. So where they're making decisions or where they're, where they're running assets, they will be able to calculate whatever the carbon emissions are for that asset and they can then look at that on a price per ton basis. So they know that if they've got a shadow carbon price of £70 a ton, they can work out what their, their, their carbon price would be. What is expected 
happens and there will have to be kind of payments made, effectively a tax paid on the carbon for those assets, then obviously that's just another cost to owning the asset. So suddenly you start having carbon pricing and you're starting to pay, as we used to with CRC, with the carbon reduction commitment some years ago, we used to have to kind of to pay that and that was then translated through energy bills. So understanding that, pricing that, that will start to kind of, again, address this issue of it just being kind of under the radar, if you like, the carbon emissions that are coming out of the assets. It also starts to focus around embodied carbon. So businesses that are doing developments are starting to incorporate the shadow carbon pricing in their calculations, because then they can see if I choose this material, if I build it like this, that's going to have a different impact. And that, if we look at the cost of carbon in that, then that helps them kind of sort out what those decisions look like and move to a slightly, to a lower carbon decision pathway for a building. So we have carbon pricing, we have data challenges, mm. we have potential stranding of assets, we have mm. CRIM pathways. You guys thought all I talked about was space as a service. <laughs> but, but I do talk about space as a service, and that's next, because if we can't have a conversation about sustainability without bringing up space as a service and the agility and flexibility that it provides for customers, in your conversations, does space as a service come into the topic of sustainability, or do you have a view on that? I do, and it and it does depending on obviously depending on who we're talking to and whether or not they're involved in space as a service. And yes, you you can't really have a conversation about sustainability without talking about space at the moment. But in terms of space as a service, one of the really it, it should lend itself to running incredibly efficient buildings. Because obviously, if you're providing the space as a service, then you're providing it generally on a full cost basis. So anything you can do to reduce the running cost of that building will come straight to your bottom line. So the business model itself suggests that it should be more efficient. And that will simply reduce your carbon emissions and your energy demand for that building. It should be run more efficiently and more effectively. You will also be looking at you know things like, things like office fit-outs, those kinds of things, and being able to actually get much more out of the resources we use in terms of office fit-out. Because so often, traditionally, office fit-outs are just ripped out when new businesses come in, and it's incredibly wasteful. The resources that get used in that are huge. So if, you've got, if you're running a space-as-a-service business, then you're, you're going to be much more organized and much more mindful about, actually, well, what am I providing for the client? And, and, and how long can that be reused for? And how do, we, how, do we make that, how do we just make that more efficient and more cost-effective? So I'm going to repurpose what you've just said, because I think it's a value bomb. Space as a service is more carbon efficient than traditional leasing. It could be. The model, <laughs> lends, the yeah, the, the the model lends itself to being more efficient because you're if you're offering it as a service, and as I say, if you're if you're offering it on that full cost basis, then you are going to be minded to keep your costs down because everything that you that you reduce will will go to the bottom line. As a landlord, if you're letting a space on an FRI basis to a tenant, then it's not really in your interest to then invest usually or to kind of monitor or do anything different in terms of the, of the running of that building if it's the tenant that's going to benefit from it all the time. But if customers are asking for landlords to help them save, be more uh, energy efficient, uh, and to go into buildings that are, are mindful of carbon, then it is the landlord's responsibility to... Yes, and indeed, and that's kind of one of the things that's kind of moved the market a bit is that... Tenants are kind of being much more choosy, and particularly, I think it's 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 different in different stages of the market. But certainly, in the kind of more expensive corporate office market, then yes, they are being very picky about what they're going to go into. So at that end of the market, there's been quite a bit of change. I mean, I think that there's there's a huge long tail of real estate assets 
and they are you know they're not all going to be occupied by tenants who have huge sustainability plans you know, they're going to be occupied by businesses who are just getting 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 on with what they need to do, and they don't have kind of teams trying to run stuff. You know, sustainability in the SG for them. That's the car- that's the carrot. If the if the customer was looking at that, then there's the carrot. But if the regulations come in that require the buildings, then there's a stick that lenders, regardless, are still going to have. They're to, going to have to do it anyway. It. And this is, I mean, it, you know, energy performance certificates. Whilst we, they're certainly, they've certainly got their flaws they were very effective in getting people's attention to actually get the certificates done and then understand what was going on in their buildings and start to get also start to get their data in order because not because the asset managers at the time and when i was remember first doing this not because they were particularly minded to be more environmentally friendly but it was going to slow their transactions down if they didn't have one so anything that starts to slow transaction or just makes it more difficult to trade a building will get attention and that's, you know, it's, the ESG has just moved completely into, into the area where it is really front and center, of, and certainly in terms of some deals. There's another aspect to space as a service I want to bring up around sustainability, and, and that is the sort of the juxtaposition or the, or the comparison between a, someone taking a fast-growing company, taking traditional leasing, taking more space than what they need, or a large corporate having more space than what they need currently, it's a big trend right now. Whereas if it was offered on a flexible basis in a space as a service model, and we matched supply and demand more efficiently, then that's way more sustainable, both for the company and the building, right? It's more efficient if you've got that matching of, of, supply, and, of supply and demand within the market. But it's it's quite challenging for the market to, to really move wholesale to that kind of model. You know, the, the investment market is based on, on leases and tenant covenants. So if you move to a situation where actually your, you know, your weighted average lease length is three months as opposed to five years, that's going to have an impact on the, on the value of your, of your portfolio and the value of your assets. There are challenges around trying to get the market to kind of, uh, to change. Um, and to be able to kind of reflect that and to, 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 to take that into account to accommodate it. Obviously, we saw a huge amount of change with WeWork and all of the things around that with the with space as a service and with variable results. You know, they ended up being a huge landlord and buying an awful lot of property. But yeah, the results were mixed with that. So I think it's a model that's been around for a while. I think it will get more traction. I also think it's really important that that sector in terms of enabling kind of new businesses and startup businesses and things, particularly around the sectors that we desperately need for climate change. So research and development, so the R&D sectors being able to, you know, standing up teams to be able to actually focus on projects around R&D, also tech sector, all of these things that we really need to, to, to happen. We need to have space that will accommodate them. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, huge floor plates on 25-year leases. <laughs> no, no, it's the, the flexibility unlocks the innovation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for... The longest time, I, I feel like sometimes I defend WeWork. Um, I think there were massive flaws in their business model, but they got the the customer experience in to, to what the market wanted right, mm. but obviously massive problems with their business model. I think that we've heard this for a long time, Real estate, and it's true, real estate wants that long lease. This morning in one of the sessions, I heard someone get up on stage talking about don't expect things to go back the way they were. We need to be thinking and adopting new ideas. Mm, yeah. so, so I think this will become preeminent in the future. I'm betting on it. But uh, anyway, I, I won't get on that soapbox today. Is it, I mean, it, it's taken us a long time to drag the real estate industry into the 21st century, certainly in the UK. 
<laughs> but it's not, not limited to the UK. <laughs> it's um, but it's it is moving, and yeah, I mean the the the, the future is kind of coming down the track faster than yeah than, than we are potentially kind of expecting things are changing really rapidly there's that interesting session this morning about ai and technology and how fast that's that's moving crazy um, fast yeah and uh, i think we need to as an industry to be able to start accommodating that but also we have to be able to accommodate climate change because without that we're not operating in a net zero carbon global economy by 2050 then we've got way bigger problems than space as a service <laughs> well i would like to say the space as a service will help us get there but on that note I think it will Thank you so much. This is fantastic. I'm, I'm glad we get to sit down face to face. We'll put a link in the show notes to Longevity's website yeah. and, and to your Great, LinkedIn, if you. that's okay. Yeah, of course. Thanks again uh, for taking the time and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself. And for our final segment, I'm back in the studio with Jonas, co-founder of NorNorm. So Jonas, we heard how you got started with Epicenter. We've heard from Epicenter CEO. Where's NorNorm now? Well, thank you. I think we're on a massive growth journey now. The world will never be the same after post-COVID. We're now in 14 countries, 59 cities, and we're now just entered into the UK. And I think we just closed our first Series A of 110 million euros. And we believe that we are going to be bigger than Uber because I think no one really wants to buy furniture because people want to have a subscription on this thing. This is one of the last frontiers that has not been serviceified yet. And I think we're going to really massive contribute to that. Well, there we go. A journey of innovation, profitability, and a greener horizon. Powered by NorNorm. Join the revolution and sign up for a furniture subscription. Visit nornorm.com and stay tuned to the Workbook Podcast for more illuminating narratives and transformative insights shaping the landscape of sustainable workspace solutions. And of course, I want to thank my Newflex colleague, Morgan Pierstor, for collaborating with me on this episode. A big shout out to Jeff for all your behind the scenes magic to produce the show. And my friend, mentor and podcast prophet, Mr. Jason Allen Scott, for all your coaching, wisdom and time to help me become a better host. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. I want to thank our headline sponsor, NorNorm, who we heard from across this episode. If you don't know what NorNorm does, just a quick reminder, NorNorm is a furniture-as-a-service company. Last episode, I shared the first of three reasons why I believe they are a huge part of the future of our industry and why I wanted them as our headline sponsor. Here's number two. NorNorm helps businesses significantly reduce their climate impact with up to 70%. If we design our buildings to be sustainable, we should also be supporting our customers' efforts as well. Tune in to the next episode for more insights from NorNorm and to hear my reason number three. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Making a high-quality podcast like this one takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire a podcast company. With our White Glove experience, we handle everything for you. From guest outreach all the way through to publishing and promotion, we handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews and build relationships with your guests, and we take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. Every podcast interview is the start of a new relationship. With a weekly podcast, you'd build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through your podcast interviews over the next 12 months. 
Do you believe that 52 new relationships would help grow your business? We do. Contact jason at a podcastcompany.com and let's talk.